welcome to the latest edition of IIEA Insights with me, Dan O'Brien. As a student, more years ago than I'd care to admit, Desmond Diamond's textbooks on the European Union were almost biblical in learning about Europe's unique experiments in supranational government. And it is more than a pleasure to host him today to discuss current and future developments in the block. Des is one of the world's leading scholars of the EU and is the Jean Monnet Professor at George Mason University in the US. In that capacity, he's lived in Arlington, Virginia for decades, but joins us today from Brussels, where he spends a lot of time uh, for research purposes. Des, you are very welcome to the Institute. Thank you so much, Dan. Delighted to be here. Let's kick off with uh, a subject we've been discussing an awful lot of the Institute over the past seven years, that is Brexit. Uh, in particular, how, from your perspective, has Brexit changed the functioning of the EU itself with the British no longer at the table? I would say in a number of ways. One um, is the language regime. English is dominant. And that seems counterintuitive. You would think with the departure of the UK that uh, the importance of English would have, have diminished. But on the contrary, it's much more of a level playing field now, because with the exception of, of Ireland and Malta, uh, for everybody else, English um, is, is, of course, not a first language. Uh, and so English is, is very much the dominant language. And, and that seems odd, again, in the context of the language wars that seem to be about to pick up at the moment with Spain pushing for the inclusion of three regional languages. But the fact is that at a working level, English has been dominant for some time, but is even more so because of Brexit. I would say within the institutions, you could break it down by looking at each of the institutions. If you look at the European Parliament, uh, nobody was sad to see Nigel Farage and company leave. And that might seem like a small point, um, but the extent to which the British Eurosceptics gummed up the works in the European Parliament was quite extraordinary. Um, there are still Eurosceptics in the European Parliament, uh, but the departure of the British Eurosceptics has, I would say, improved the functioning of the European Parliament. I would say the, 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 the biggest differences, however, the more, more substantive differences are within the European Council in terms both of decision making, because now the other larger member states, other big member states rather, have proportionately greater voting weight. And, and that's quite obvious in, in decision making in the Council. But it, it, apart from decision-making, I, I would say, if you like, the perspective of the council and, uh, is, is very different because that voice, that very strong voice uh, of a large member state in favor of economic liberalism is now absent. And that's something that is quite detrimental to the interests of other member states that share that perspective, including, by the way, Ireland. And I think an example of this is um, the discussion that's taking place at the moment about a possible new own resource based on corporate uh, taxation, which is, of course, very much against Ireland's interests. And Ireland could have looked to and expected the support of the United Kingdom in opposing that. Uh, it's much harder to oppose something if you're a small member state without the support of a big member state. And Ireland's interests and the United Kingdom's interests within the European Union at a policy level often coincided and and i think that that's a noticeable absence and the other absence is within the civil service generally um the 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 the, the british functionaire were, were widely respected uh, highly regarded and there are fewer and fewer of them because of course um they're not being replaced uh, and and that's noticeable it's noticeable at the senior levels 
of all of the institutions and um, at middle level and certainly at the lower level because no new functionary are coming in from the United Kingdom. You, you, you mentioned corporation tax. Inevitably, was, I was going to come to it later on, but as it's already been raised, in, in terms of talk about the veto over various areas, including uh, taxation, it was a report out yesterday by a group of 12 French and German uh, think tankers commissioned by the, their respective Europe, Europe ministers. And in it, they advocate pretty much the removal of the veto on, on all, in all policy areas. Yeah. Over the next five to 10 years, do you anticipate that there will be agreements on scrapping the veto? And does that mean effectively that Ireland's corporation tax regime will no longer be purely a matter of domestic policy, but, but will be subject to, uh, to EU rules? No, the veto will always be there. When I say the veto will always be there, I mean, there will be more recourse to qualified majority voting and the modalities of qualified majority voting may change as well. But I mean, within the European Council, which is the key decision-making body in the European Union, national leaders will always want to have recourse to a veto, or at least the possibility of invoking the veto, in other words, the shadow of the veto, even if the veto is not actually um, actually invoked. I think it's very important for all member states um, to be able to oppose um, policies or initiatives which, which they very strongly think are against their national interest and which would generate just considerable domestic political difficulty and opposition. Uh, and so I think there will be changes institutionally and I understand why um, um, we academics and think tankers would like the veto to be remo removed because it seems to be such an, an obvious obstacle uh, to effective decision making. But I think for political reasons, it's very important uh, that national governments retain the veto in, in certain highly sensitive uh, policy fields. Defense and security come to mind as well. Okay, and another subject, another subject we'll come back to. So I think that'll be uh, a relief to some of the people joining uh, this uh, this uh, conversation today. Um, in terms of the next generation EU, this three quarters of a trillion euro bond issuance by the by the European institutions during the pandemic, um, a previous speaker here said. Uh, that that would never have happened if the British had still been members at the time. One, do you think that's the case? And much more importantly, do you think this 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 groundbreaking uh, use of issue, debt issuance by the European institutions is the beginning of something new, giving the European institutions, the EU itself, uh, the power to borrow money? Or do you think it truly was a one-off because of the, hopefully, uh, once in a century pandemic that they've hit. I would agree that um, with the UK as a member, um, the COVID recovery fund would not have happened in its current form, but there would have been a workaround because the member states uh, became, the other member states became adept at working around British obstructionism or, or um, refusals, uh, opposition to certain proposals. Um, the the last twenty years in the European Union are replete with examples of that. So I think it it would have been it would have been much more difficult and more time consuming, and and and, and that would have been detrimental to the European Union because of of the nature of the crisis, of course. Um, but certainly, it would not have happened in this form. 
the significance um, of of the package um, is uh, it, 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 it's certainly high. It's 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 very significant. It's very important. Um, is it a game changer in the context of of the pandemic and the crisis and, and the need for an economic response, um, an urgent response? Absolutely. In the long term, I'm not so sure. And one reason is because of the cost of borrowing. The cost of borrowing has gone up. It was zero essentially at the time of the of the agreement in 2020. It's now I don't know four or five percent. And there's a midterm review taking place of the European Union's budget, the multiannual financial perspective um, (MFF) as it's called. And one of the big issues that 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 all of the players, be they in the European Parliament or or, or the Commission or the Council, are dealing with is how do you pay for the unexpected cost of borrowing such a large amount of money? So there's going to have to be a new tranche of money injected into the multiannual financial framework midterm just to deal with that. So I think it's a cautionary tale that borrowing comes with costs. I mean, that's intuitive, isn't it? But at a time when the agreement was reached, it did not seem to be that important. Now it is. So I, I, I think that um, there will be more borrowing by the Commission in the future to deal with particular issues, but not on the same scale. Great. Okay. So and one, of, one of the things I suppose that, that surprised me, a lot of people around that, that um, decision to allow the institution to borrow money, uh, was Germany. Uh, always a country that resisted that idea that uh, the, the institutions could borrow and Angela Merkel then chancellor at the time within months caved in and uh, accepted that and the other more fiscally sort of uh, frugal member states uh, then then followed suit um, in terms of German influence in in the European Union a lot of shocks the departure of Angela Merkel the 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 stakes over dealing with Russia, which became apparent on the 24th of February last year. Uh, Germany's own economic performance uh, is now uh, the worst of the big member states. How has that affected German German influence in the EU? And, and was 10 years ago when Germany was sort of clearly the, the, the first among equals of the member states, what was that a, a sort of perception issue around Germany uh, that's now evaporated or, you know, what was Germany genuinely uh, much more influential and has it become less influential? I think that the influence of member states rises and falls to a degree. There, there are structural factors. And if you look at those factors in relation to Germany, clearly Germany's size and economic weight gives it a preponderant influence in the European Union. But then there are contingent factors that are circumstantial that can affect the influence of a, of a member state. In Germany's case, I would point to two. One is the legacy of Germany's insistence on austerity during the Euro crisis and the very hard line that Germany took during the Euro crisis. I think that um, was detrimental to the image of Germany and the perception of Germany within the European Union, and that can have an effect, of course, on the country's influence. And I also think, going back to the um, original question, that the reason why Germany accepted borrowing by the European Union is partly because it was highly sensitive to the image that it had generated during the Euro crisis and wanted to counter that image. 
And I think the influence of France here was very important because it it was a, a Franco-German agreement initially to allow commission borrowing that paved the way for the broader agreement within the European Council. So that's an example of the importance of the Franco-German relationship and the influence in this case that France was able to exert on, on Germany. And then both countries were able to present this as a, as a, as a joint proposal um, within uh, the, the European Council. Another contingent factor in, in uh, Germany's case is um, the weakness or the perceived weakness of the Schulz uh, coalition government. And, and the very long time it seems to have taken Schultz to settle in as the new chancellor. Now, one might say that's inevitable, given that Merkel had been chancellor for so long and her image had really <laughs> dominated that of, of Germany and uh, of, of our chancellorship of, of, of Germany, of course, but also leadership of the European Union. Even though in retrospect, as you said, in relation to the Euro crisis, in relation to the migration crisis, in relation to Russia, Merkel's legacy is not as shining, perhaps, as we thought that it, it would be. Nonetheless, I, th I think the, the difficulty that Schulz has had, and especially because of the, the very delicate coalition politics within Germany, are a contingent factor that is um, perhaps limiting Germany's influence. But structurally, Germany was and really always will be the leading member state. Um, to put it very simplistically, in, in, in terms of the Franco-German relationship, where, where would you, on a scale of one to ten, where where would you put it right now in comparison to the past fifty years or so? Uh, I would say six in terms of the strength of the relationship, um, and four in terms of the influence of France and Germany within the European Union. Oh, wow. Okay, that's 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 interesting. Yeah. And in, in terms of, you know, it's a, I suppose a, a perennial debate amongst those of us who try and understand the European Union, you know, in, in, in terms of how countries make alliances and the relationship between big countries and the small countries, have you seen a shift over time in terms of the influence of individual countries or is it still very much about countries forming alliances on the basis of the interests they have at a certain time. Has that dynamic changed at all? Or is it that is that always really an unchanging element of, of how the bloc functions? Well, I would say that, again, you have to look at, at structural factors and contingent factors. And, and the structural factors really have to do with the the size of a member state, size in terms of, of demography and economic weight. And larger member states are more influential. It's a fact of of, of life, of international relations, I mean, and we shouldn't forget that although the European Union is an extraordinary and singular polity, there are still elements of traditional international relations in how the member states interact with each other. And uh, in those interactions, um, the larger member states tend to have more influence. But again, if you look at contingent factors, then you see that the influence of member states can change over time. Um, if you look at it, if you personalize it by looking at the European Council and how the European Council operates, uh, power is the currency of, 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 of international relations and, and, and of, of, of politics, really. And everybody sitting around the table in the European Council knows the value of that currency. They know who's up, who's down, uh, who's having domestic political difficulties. Um, and I, I, I don't want to um, overemphasize this or, or exaggerate it. It's, it's not because it's not entirely quantifiable. 
but I mean that the dynamics change and they can change from meeting to meeting, from month to month, from year to year. At the moment, the smaller member states are in a better position precisely because the bigger member states are relatively weaker. We mentioned Germany already. The same is true of France. Macron is preoccupied with, with domestic issues. And I think within the European Union, he's aware that he really has overstepped the bounds and has alienated leaders in Central and Eastern Europe. And he's trying to roll back on that. So he's not as, as assertive as he would like to be, or he usually is. Um, so you, you have France and Germany both separately and together, not quite as influential uh, or indeed assertive as they have been in the past. And that leaves more space for, for other member states. Um, but I think an advantage for some of the smaller member states at the moment has to do with the Ukraine conflict and where they are. It was um, not, not only the smaller member states, Poland comes to mind and Poland is a big member state, but it was the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, which for years had been warning around the table of the European Council about the danger of um, that Russia posed, um, not just to, to Ukraine, but to security and stability and Europe. And they were generally ignored and condescended to. Uh, now they're being listened to. And I think if you look at the leaders, for instance, of the, of the Baltic states in, in particular, they're much more influential. They are listened to more um, within the European Council and within the European Union as a whole. The European Union is, is dynamic by nature nothing is constant. Um, in general, of course, as I said, bigger member states have more influence and that is that, that is, a, is a defective of international relations. But on any policy issue, on any particular crisis, at any particular time, influence can shift. Um, I don't know whether to go on to security and defense issues or Poland, but maybe maybe Poland, given, given that you just mentioned it, uh, Clearly, there's been conflict between between Poland uh, and the some other many other the member states around the rule of law issue. Um, has do you think there's there's a sort of modus vivendi that 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 is that exists now around this, or do you expect to see that dynamic? Um, the institutions and other member states push back further against Poland. Um, there is no modus vivendi. Uh, I think the hope in Brussels is very obvious that in the next election in, in a few weeks' time in Poland, that there'll be a new government. Um, and of course, that government, uh, if, if the leader of the new government is, is Donald Tusk, will be very pro-EU. And that's why I think it's... it's. I, I know we're, we're using Poland in, 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 in shorthand for the country, but there's a big split in Poland. Um, and so the, there's a big difference between the current government and the prospective new government. And if the opposition wins and forms the new government in Poland, we'll be talking about Poland in a very different wow. way. Um, but as far as the law and justice um, government is, is concerned in, in Poland, uh, it's made its position very clear. It has laid out its view on European integration, which is very much at variance with the prevailing view in Brussels about supranationalism, for instance. It's, it's very much an intergovernmental view, statist view of how the European Union uh, should develop. 
And uh, I think that um, a lot of, of, of other um, national governments and, and certainly within the institutions in Brussels, a lot of people are hoping that there'll be a change in Poland in a, in a few weeks' time and we'll be talking about Poland, therefore, in a very different way. The problem is Hungary. <laughs> right. Okay. We, we, we may get onto that, but so many, so many issues uh, before that treaty reform. Um, yeah. The prospect of treaty, treaty reform, that, that report that came out yesterday, the French yeah. and German uh, scholars very much advocated treaty reform, uh, but it's very difficult to see uh, the 27 agreeing to, to treaty reform at any time in the future. What, what, what is your view? Do you think it's over the next five to 10 years, there, there could be another reform of, of the basic treaties of the EU? Well, you're right in that the report um, very much advocated treaty change, and it, it suggested... Um, different ways of, of changing the treaties. Um, there are only two ways, according to the current treaty, the Lisbon Treaty. One is the, the ordinary way of, of treaty change, which would be a convention followed by an intergovernmental conference. And then there's a simplified method, um, which allows only for an intergovernmental conference. Um, but that's limited to part three of the treaty on the functioning of the European Union, so it uh, which which covers very specific policy fields, and in fact it was used once in relation to the eurozone crisis. In other words, there was a very discrete treaty change um, brought about through the, 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 the simplified method, and included in the simplified method are clauses that exist in the treaty, so-called passerelle clauses that allow the European Council to decide if it if it decides unanimously. Um, to change decision making from qualified from unanimity to qualified majority voting, and that hasn't even been used. Um, so I, I understand um, the um, the need for the desir desirability, let us say, for a treaty change, and someone see, see the need for treaty change. But I think it's something that governments just don't want to do, because they realize that the political capital that they would need to invest in treaty change is enormous. Um, and they realized that the domestic support might not be there. And um, what was quite obvious in, in uh, quite striking in, in, in the report we just mentioned of the Franco-German um, uh, think tankers is that they said explicitly a problem with treaty change is that it requires referendums and nobody wants to go down that particular road. Um, and so they, they made other suggestions. They, they called for linking major treaty change with accession treaties. And I think in the past, there have been not major overall treaty changes, but minor treaty changes that have been tied into accession treaties. But I don't think it would fly to wrap a major treaty change into an accession treaty for a, a prospective new member state. And then they said, well, maybe the national governments could negotiate a framework uh, new treaty that could be part of major treaty change. National governments are not going to invest the time in negotiating a notional framework treaty, which might not even be possible then to tie to accession treaties. So it's, it's a real problem, it's a real bind. And I don't want to appear sanguine about this at all, but you know, there's a lot of, potential in the Lisbon Treaty already. As I said, there are these passerelle clauses. Um, there are some other opp opportunities to develop the potential of the Lisbon Treaty. And I, I think that we should avoid getting hung up on the perceived necessity for treaty change. 
accept the EU as it is and accept that it works, it's complicated, it's cumbersome at times, but it functions relatively well. And that's where our focus should be. Okay, on, on a specific policy issue, going back to the, the security and defense matter since the invasion of Ukraine, um, whether it involves treaty change or not, what, what do you think the prospects around uh, more EU-level cooperation in that area, particularly if the US were to pull out of NATO, is, 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 is now not unthinkable as it might have been yeah. pre-2016. Uh, but if, if US security guarantees were not there uh, as soon as 18 months from now, um, although Donald Trump did say some nice things about NATO on the Meet the Press on on, uh, on Sunday, last Sunday. Um, but if that were to happen, how, how would you anticipate the European reaction? And also just in terms of, of Ireland, it, it struck me when you were speaking of Maynooth uh, earlier this year, you, you, you mentioned sort of unique debate in Ireland around uh, security and defence matters. You might elaborate just on, on, on our own uh, perspective on this. Um, I've always been rather doubtful about the prospects for security and defence, defence in particular within the European Union, because I think that the differences amongst member states are too great. Although, as you said, if, if there was an external event, such as a sea change in American policy, that would therefore perhaps propel member states to make a decision um, uh, in this area, um, that might that might make a difference. Um, but I think not. Um, you know, the European Union has always been fundamentally about economics. And the core of the European Union, as we know, is the single market um, and flanking policies and economic and monetary union as, as well. And developing economic and monetary union was, 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 was a, a, a major um, step forward for the European Union in terms of sharing sovereignty. I don't think member states are there yet when it comes to security and defense. And what the war in Ukraine has shown is the increasing importance of NATO. And I think that's really where um, the, the game is. That's, it's, 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 it's very much a NATO, uh, obviously a NATO competence. And I think that, that, that the EU members of NATO and prospective members of NATO, like Sweden, realize that. Now, of course, things can change within NATO, and, and NATO is very much all about the American security guarantee to Europe and America's uh, huge contribution militarily uh, to NATO. But I think there's another obstacle to the European Union uh, developing a, a, a serious defense competence, which is financial. I mentioned earlier the multi-annual financial framework, the European Union budget, there are so many demands on the European Union budget at the moment that it's hard to see member states agreeing to increase the budget in ways that would be necessary to develop a truly effective military capability. Hmm. Um, so it, it kind of strikes me that the, the next generation in the EU, the quarter of a trillion, um, you know, it, it's really dubious as to whether that's going to make a, a significant difference to, to the European economy. You know, if you, you look at the webpage of, on the European Commission, it talks about transforming societies and economies. Um, a, a sort of major question in my mind over that. But if push came to shove and, and the, the European institutions had to raise money for defence, let's just imagine that we, we get into a second Donald Trump term and, the, uh, and, and he pulls out of NATO. Um, you know, could you foresee 
um, an emergency situation rising where the governments collectively decide we have to do this. This is mo even more urgent and necessary that we we spend more on defence uh, than the next generation EU plan during COVID. Oh, I think that's I think that's possible, and um, the the prospect of another Trump presidency, of course, terrifies so many of us. But it's a real prospect. And the consequences of that for transatlantic relations, I think, will be will be very, very, um, very, very damaging, and and that indeed could be uh, a, a spur um, for for the European Union um, seriously to move in, uh, or to become a a a defense actor. As 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 we're discussing now, money is is, is crucial to that. I'm not sure that member states would want to do this through the same mechanism of raising money. I think if they're serious about it, then they have to show their commitment by increasing the budget of the European Union in traditional ways, maybe obviously by, by increasing the, the national contribution through uh, the percentage of, of gross national income that they are willing to contribute to the European Union budget. And it might also be an area, and this ties back into the um, paper that just came out, the Franco-German paper, although it's a paper not of the French and German governments, but of French and German think tankers, um, in in um, calling for or 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 or, or further um, emphasizing the possibility of differentiation, differentiated integration within the European Union and a core group of countries acting themselves, and that could be a, a, a policy field defense in which we see a core group of countries moving ahead. Uh might come back to the east-west divisions in the EU, but just specifically on, on that point you, you made a minute uh, about Ireland's unique discussion, just elaborate a little on that around security. Well, the, the discussion in Ireland is un, unrelated to, to reality um, because Ireland is in a very wonderful and, and enviable position um, geographically. Um, maybe there should be more sympathy in Ireland for what it would be like if Ireland were um, located elsewhere in Europe, in Eastern Europe, uh, close to to Russia, um, so Ireland, um, as I said, can can discuss this um, secure in the knowledge that Ireland is unlikely to be invaded, um, and 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 yet in in the event of an escalating conflict in Europe, which is quite likely. Um, Ireland um, might not be able to stay out of the fray, meaning that I'm sure there would be Russian efforts to sabotage, I don't know, um, um, some resources in, in, in Ireland or, or undersea cables or, or whatever. Um, I suspect there are contingencies for this, um, that the US military and other militaries, either in, in consultation with Ireland or not, have contingency plans to act in that event. That's what militaries do, they plan. And contingency planning is is part of what they do, um, but it's quite extraordinary at a time when um, countries elsewhere in Europe are increasing their defence spending. When you have a sea change apparently in Germany when it comes to defence policy, um, that the debate in Ireland, and I, I know that there there, there is a debate, um, and and um, um, there's there perhaps is some urgency to to the debate, but it's still, in my view, just un, unrelated to the reality of, of what's happening in Europe. And do you, do you think that's affected Ireland's standing within the EU, uh, particularly amongst, you know, that East-West division? You mentioned earlier on that some of the some of the countries closer to Russia in the past 
uh, were condescended to when they warned of the Russian threat and they, they've been proved right. Um, does, does Ireland's sort of non-involvement or um, uh, certainly non-participation in NATO, does, does, does that, has that changed that dynamic? I'm not sure if you've looked at this. I know that, no. you know, you don't. Ireland is not your area of study. It's more a function no. of the EU. But it, anything that you've noticed uh, since the, since the invasion? No, I haven't noticed a change here. Here in Brussels, um, you you can look at NATO Brussels and European Union Brussels. Uh, NATO Brussels obviously is all about defence. EU Brussels is increasingly about defence, and Ireland is simply not a player. It's it's simply not an issue. It's not discussed. Um, nobody within the European Union that I know of, or within NATO, has ever seriously discussed the possibility of Ireland joining NATO. It's just seen as 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 not 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 just unlikely to happen, but but unimportant for the future of NATO, unimportant for the future of Europe, the European Union security policy. So Ireland is simply not a player. It doesn't mean that Ireland cannot be influential because Ireland, after all, is assisting Ukraine in um, in every possible way. And its assistance is not inconsiderable. In so Ireland has a, a, a voice, um, Ireland has a seat at the table and, and, and a voice. And I think Ireland is listened to in the sense that Ireland is a respected member state. But in this particular policy field, it's not a player. Um, uh, uh, bluntly, plainly spoken. Um, you mentioned earlier on that primarily the EU is, a, is, a, is an economic uh, entity around the single market. Yeah. Um, in terms of, the, and you also mentioned the EU broadly functions. Um, of course, to, to my mind, well, not of course, but to my mind, the greatest crisis in the history of the, the European project was the Euro crisis. Um, now that's been in abeyance for more than more than a decade, but. It, it certainly seems to me that the, the monetary union is not, you see this in the history of monetary unions, you can't be absolutely sure monetary unions will, will survive forever. Uh, what sort of sense do you have around the fundamental weaknesses of the of, of monetary union, or do you feel that those problems that caused that, that real crisis more than a decade ago have been dealt with? Um, how, how big a risk do you see of there being a renewal of crisis and uh, that north-south divide opening up again? I think the euro crisis has not been resolved. I think it's in remission because the fundamental reforms necessary to shore up economic and monetary union were not taken. And the reason why is because the political costs domestically are, are too high. Um, so there is a discussion that has been continuing about um, about reform of EMU having to do with um, the capital markets union. And, and by the way, there was a paper issued um, recently by the French and German finance ministers on the need to complete the capital markets union. That's an example of Franco-German leadership. In this case, it was direct leadership by the governments of both countries. It was not delegated to a group of think tankers. Um, so there's, there's an ongoing discussion, as we know, within the Eurogroup on uh, completing the capital um, markets union, on completing the banking union. It's hard to believe that that is still incomplete. But the big question, of course, and, and the big political stumbling block is a fiscal union. Now, we know intellectually and academically that in order to shore up economic and monetary union, there really needs to be a fiscal union. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. So one could say, therefore, that the project of economic and monetary union is inherently in a chronic crisis because 
the foundations are so weak and because the political will and, and capital necessary to shore up those foundations, in other words, to bring about a fiscal union, simply are not there. So I think the extent to which the euro crisis might re-erupt uh, to the extent uh, that it erupted originally will really depend on the situation within particular member states. And we hope, obviously, that there won't be excessive borrowing to the extent that there was in the past. Of course, increasing interest rates helps in that respect because it makes it more difficult and expensive for governments to, to borrow. And I think governments have learned some of the lessons of the past. But I would not be um, at all complacent about um, the prospects for a, a, another um, uh, crisis, Euro crisis, yeah. Another economic issue is the uh, rise of subsidization of big government, a return of big, big government. So certainly the European reaction to the US's Inflation Reduction Act, um, hugely negative uh, reaction in Europe. I think largely that some issues have been dealt with and it's not quite as bad as it was when it initially came out. But um, Europe's single market and its Treaty enshrined anti-state aid rules. How does how is do you see that working in this sort of era of big government where the people are more convinced that subsidization can be effective in terms of uh, improving economic performance? So has Europe effectively tied itself to a, a more free market type of model, uh, or or can that are there are there workarounds there where uh, there could be significant? government intervention at either national or EU level? I think competition policy in the European Union has been very effective and very successful. And it's an essential policy field because it's linked so closely to the single market. You can't have a properly functioning single market without a competition policy um, that regulates uh, antitrust, for instance, and especially state aids. I think the problem now is that there is an effort, uh, competition policy, of course, when it comes to state aids, aimed to prevent governments from supporting national champions. The problem now is the projection, if you like, of national champions onto the European stage. The discussion now is, well, what about having European champions? Surely the European Union should facilitate the emergence of economic actors at the European level, which can compete globally. The problem with that is that the European champions are really French and German champions. This is where you see, again, a close connection or alliance between France and Germany. Because of their economic weight, it is companies in France and Germany which are likely to benefit more if there's a relaxation of European competition policy in the context of increasing subsidization globally and the perceived need, perceived need for Europe to become more competitive globally. So I, 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 I understand where the pressure is coming from, but the danger is that it's going to accentuate differences within the European Union and open a big rift, uh, in particular between France and Germany on the one hand and the other member states, um, which don't have the same industrial capacity and don't have the same resources that they can provide to industries uh, to, to compete globally. And I, it certainly seems to me that, that Germany has moved closer to the traditional French approach, and we've already seen 
significant uh, chip investment by the by the, the German government. Is is do, do you view that as being a correct analysis that G Germany has shifted from towards the French position and being more interventionist? I do, and again, coming back to an earlier point, this is where the UK's absence is um, keenly felt because the UK would have been a voice in the European Union warning against that. Uh, it would have been a, a very strong voice in favor of economic um, liberalism. But I, I agree with your assessment of Germany. Um, just a couple of final ones. The, the report that came out yesterday advocated the European Parliament have the same electoral system. Uh, every country, every member country has the same electoral system. Um, I found that somewhat perplexing. Do, do you see a, a case for that? And secondly, would you be concerned about more corruption coming out of the European Parliament? We saw that, that uh, recent uh, Targate uh, corruption scandal uh, certainly seemed to me that, that there's a lack of sort of journalistic and other scrutiny in the European Parliament. And I, I for one, wouldn't be at all surprised if there's more uh, going on in, in that sort of, uh, in, in, in more corruption in the European Parliament than we know about. Do you think that that assessment could be correct? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, as far as the same electoral system, I'm all for that. Um, it should be PRSTV. <laughs> they should adopt the Irish electoral system, which is which is very fair um, uh, and complicated and beloved in Ireland, as we know. Um, I think it's par far preferable to the list system that most member states have. But in general, I, I do understand and in fact agree with the idea of having the same electoral system. If these are common European um, uh, direct elections uh, throughout the European Union, I think it's fair to have a, a, a common electoral system. Um, within the European Parliament, look, there's a lot of soft corruption within the European Parliament. Uh, Qatargate was striking because of the amounts of money involved and, 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 and the revelation, the way that that was revealed. Um, but I, I would say that soft corruption is endemic in an institution like the uh, the European Parliament in, in other parliamentary assemblies as well. But given the supranational nature of the European Parliament, given its size, given the very different national political cultures, I think it's 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 hard to 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 counter that. It doesn't mean that the institution should not be aware of that, and I think it is, and I think that the. Um, as an institution, the European Parliament is certainly trying to to, to reform itself, um, but I'm not sure it would ever be possible to um, eradicate that 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 kind of corruption. Unfortunately, Des, it's been a real pleasure to have you, you join us. Uh, many thanks for giving us your time, and uh, we look forward to having having you back uh, back soon. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.